0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. I almost didn't have mine today. My daughter hid it from me a few moments ago. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's word with you, you can just reach underneath the seat that you're sitting on or look in front of you. You should be able to find a copy of God's word there. You should be able to find uh, the book of Ecclesiastes around page 553. Uh, You... If you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, or are more than welcome to take that home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study so that you might be able to understand what the Scripture is saying to you. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. And as you're reading through this, if you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, you have got a few cues for you. First, put a square around every time you see the word toil. Put a circle around every time you see the word vanity. That's something I said from the beginning. You should just circle all the references to vanity throughout. Square around toil, circle around vanity, and underline every time you see God. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, the preacher writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. this also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help as we turn our attention to your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path, and we pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts right now, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in your word, that you would help us to apply these truths, this wisdom, so that we might live more wise lives this side of eternity, and so that we might look forward with greater hope to the what is before us as the people of God. And Father, for any who are with us right now, who have not yet repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, we pray that you would use this word for their good, that they might be born again by the Spirit of God. And we ask all of this in the great name of our God, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, and the people of Christ Church Westchester said, Amen. In his novella that you could probably read in about 30 minutes like I did this past Friday, How Much Land Does a Man Need, Leo Tolstoy tells the story of a dissatisfied man, Pahom, who always wanted more, even though the seasons turned out well and the crops were good so that he began to lay money by. A peasant become master, Pahom moved from commune to commune, settlement to settlement, uprooting his family again and again, because enough was never enough, no matter how much he worked or how plentifully his land produced. In the end, desperate for more, he found that what he thought to be the deal of a lifetime, a deal that would finally end all of his frustration and satisfy him completely, and best of all, it was cheap. He could have as much land as he wanted. All that he could walk in a day for relatively little cost with one condition. He had to return to the same spot at which he started at the beginning of the day by the end of the day. Underestimating the greed of his heart, the next morning, he rose early and he traveled far, shrewdly calculating all of his steps so as to maximize the amount of land that would be deeded to him while simultaneously ensuring that the entire circuit would be square so that no side would be too long. But only at the end of the day did he realize that he had walked hard and far, but not wisely, because he did not have time to walk back. So he ran. He rushed and he hurried, exerting himself so that he could get back to the beginning, only to fall forward at the very last second with his hands reaching out to the very spot where he started. Ah, what a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief, deeding him the land. He has gained much land. Pahom's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Pahom was dead. The Baskers clicked their tongues to show their pity. Then his servant picked up a spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from head to his heels was all he needed. After spending his life to fulfill an insatiable appetite for something he never attains or even enjoys, Pahom ended up needing far less than he had tried to possess. The preacher of Ecclesiastes learned the exact same thing. Notice first what death brings. Look again in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The preacher has been on a quest to find meaning in the mist because he longs for permanence in a world of constant change and change in a world of constant and permanent repetition. In hope of finding it, he tried wisdom in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, and morality in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. And pleasure in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So now he tries work in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. But he learned a valuable lesson along the way. Death is a robber. In chapter 2, verse 16, the wise dies just like the fool. So, chapter 2, verse 17, he ended up hating life. And one of the things that he hated the very most about life was work. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. Though some of you might share that sentiment this morning, what we do for work is one of the most important things about us. That's why it is always one of the first things you ask absolutely everyone you meet. What is your name? Where do you live? What do you do for work? And if you've ever been in a conversation with me or seen me in a conversation with somebody else, you know there's about 70 other questions that follow that. Work is one of the most important things about us because it defines us. It defines us by highlighting our giftings or our interests. It highlights our calling or our passion. Raymond, a pastor. Megan, a stay-at-home mom. Lauren, an artist, Josh, an engineer, Lindsay, a photographer, Adrian, a Spanish teacher. Whether we do it simply to make a living or because we cannot envision life any other way, work is one of the most important things about us that many of us, perhaps all of us in the room today, look to for meaning. But the preacher tells us that work is the wrong place to look for meaning because, verse 18, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Whether we're called or gifted or interested or passionate, someone else will get the return for your investment. Everything that you've toiled for will be inherited by someone else, And as one pastor said, you can spend your whole life gathering a collection or building a business or making a home or amassing a fortune, but you can't take it with you. Maybe you'll lose it all when you die, or maybe the loss will happen sooner through some misfortune, but either way, eventually, your collection will go to a dealer, the contents of your home will be sold at an auction. Someone else will manage your portfolio and everything you have worked a lifetime to gain will be gone. Like that. In verse 18, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Whether it falls into good hands or bad hands, someone else will be the master of everything for which you have toiled and used all of your wisdom to obtain under the sun how's that for perspective and either they won't deserve it but they will finally get to enjoy what you've worked for or they will squander it with little thought to all of your blood sweat and tears i want you to turn with me to first kings chapter 12 after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam reigned in his place, and though Solomon did not know whether Rehoboam would be a fool, we certainly do, but it is a little unexpected, right? I mean, any sensitive reader of the Old Testament, particularly 1 Kings, is thinking the world's wisest king would have bequeathed at least some of his wisdom to his son, right? Right? I mean, a part of the royal training would have naturally been to have lessons with the sage father so that the son could also become a sage, right? Wrong. After assuming the throne, Rehoboam dismisses the counsel of the elderly wise for the youthfully ignorant and shows himself to be such a fool that he won't even listen so that he loses more than 80% of his father's kingdom after a few days' work. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. He split his father's kingdom and lost all of his father's people and later failed to protect his father's treasure, treasure that our brother Nick read to us about just a few moments ago. Just flip over to 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings 14, look in verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shushak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. The preacher learned that under the sun, we spend our whole lives working to gain something that we can never keep, something those after us may very well lose. So work all you want It, too, will vanish in the mist. Death, the reality of it, or the experience of it, brings an awareness, an awareness that Leo Tolstoy observed in A Confession. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything at all? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. For those of us who are obsessed with our work, whether it be the work of our mind or the work of our hands, that is a devastating realization. What we work for won't last because we ourselves won't last. What death brings, awareness. Notice second, what work is. Look in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must lead everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all of the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The realization that we have to leave everything behind, that we've spent our whole lives working for, is bad enough. But the preacher tells us that there is another serious problem with work, and that is the work itself. When he asks, verse 22... What has a man from all of the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Now, if you write in your Bible, beside chapter 2, verse 22, I want you to write chapter 1, verse 3. And if you look over in chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that that question of chapter 2, verse 22, takes us back to the question of chapter 1, verse 3, where the preacher asked, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then, as now, it implies nothing. Nothing but pain and grief and despair. Why? Why is it that everything that you work so hard for, that you spend your whole life trying to build or amass or learn, why is it that everything that you do every day of your life will, in the end, mean nothing? Nothing, because it is mentally demanding, or as the preacher says in verse 22, requires a striving of heart. From stay-at-home moms to small business owners and everything else between in our midst, we are so mentally and emotionally invested in our work that it wears us down and stresses us out to the point that we can no longer think straight. What's up is down, what's left is right, Have you ever been there? You are so stressed out by your work that you can no longer think clearly. You're almost paralyzed, unable to make decisions. What do I do? Work beyond your mental capacity. If you've been there, so has the preacher. But work is not only cognitively demanding, it's physically demanding. Or as the preacher says in verse 22, a toiling beneath the sun. The image makes me think of my high school summers working in a watermelon patch, 50 to 70 acres of crops, long hot hours in the fields, sweating underneath the burning heat, hungry all day long. And though I was making good money, I was too exhausted to enjoy any of it. Have you ever been there? You finally have broken through in your career, and you're able to provide what you thought was the standard of living that you and your family and the people that you care for need. But once you get there, you're too exhausted to enjoy anything. There's no time for rest and no rest for the weary. Work to the point of utter exhaustion so that the take-home pay feels more like a consolation prize than a wage. If you've been there, so has the preacher. Friends, no matter what kind of work we do, it always takes a toll on us. So the preacher says, verse 23 All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Sorrow. We are so overworked and have so much to do, we're depressed. We worry that we'll never get it all done, and we're sad that we're always behind, and we're experienced enough now to know that more is coming. It doesn't wait until we catch up. It just keeps coming and coming and piling on top. People keep asking, and friends cash in favors, and employers just put more on your desk or call in more work for you to do. Vexation. We have so much to do that we're angry. We have trained so that we can have opportunities. Or we have prayed so that God would finally give us responsibility. And when it finally comes, it laid claim to every free moment of our life. And now what we desired in life feels like a chore instead of the privilege that we imagined it would be. Restlessness. We have so much to do that we can't even sleep. And sleeplessness is a sign of just how disturbed so many of us are. It would help if we could just get a good night's sleep. That's all that I need. Some of you have said that this week. If I could just have one night where I can sleep and sleep as long as I need to sleep, no one would wake me up, no one would crawl on me in the middle of the night, nobody would call on me to wake me up to make sure that I I get to where I need to go, I would be fine. It would help if we could just get the rest that we want, but we lie awake at night worrying how we did on yesterday's test as we worry about tomorrow's examination. And because we're depressed and angry about what work may bring, we're up late and we're up early eating the bread of anxious toil. But here's the encouragement. The preacher tells us, verse 23, that these problems will last all of our days. You will never get ahead of the curve. Because our success will just result in more sorrow and more vexation and more restlessness and more work with more opportunities that demand more of you, that give you more responsibilities for more people so that you're more stressed out and become more angry that you have more to do. Whereas the point of verses 18 and 19 is about what happens to our wealth when we die The point of verses 20 through 23 is what happens to us as we strive to achieve that wealth. Friends, just a few simple questions. Are you so obsessed with your work that you can no longer see life clearly? And you know exactly what I mean. Not are you trying to work hard, but you are so obsessed with your work that it consumes every moment of your life. How to advance, how to achieve, how to check it off the list, how to divide and conquer, how to make sure that it's organized or structured. Are you a compulsive worker, overloading your days with toil and your nights with worry because you do not believe that God and God alone is enough? Does the work of your hands... And the labor of your mind bring you nothing but depression and anger and frustration. Friends, work is a good gift from God, but it is a terrible master. And 21st century Americans need to hear this more than anyone else because we are told Be all that you can be, and you can be whatever you want to be, and you can strive and attain, and you will finally break through. And God's Word says work is a good thing, but it is a terrible master because we are so controlled by this desire to finally prove ourselves to everyone else. We made it. We have arrived. We have conquered. We have achieved We are a somebody and not a nobody. What it does is it causes us to dismiss the simple joys that God is holding out for us. For example, like when we feel that we don't have any bandwidth for quality time with our family while we catch up on work emails as they sit around our feet. Or when we look over the shoulder of a friend who's pouring out their soul to us desperately because we so long to make the connection that we think will give us our next opportunity. If you make work your life, it will leave you empty in the end. And everything that you hoped that it would give you will vanish in the mist. And everything that you strive to build will just go to dust. And the preacher tells us in verse 23 that this is vanity what death brings awareness what work is vanity notice third what god gives look in verse 24 there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil this also i saw is from the hand of god for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the busyness or the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. As one pastor said, Nothing can prepare us for what comes in verses 24 through 26, because suddenly Ecclesiastes takes a surprising turn. It's been a pretty depressing message so far. I know some of you have felt that the first few weeks in here. It's a pretty depressing message, but at this point, nothing prepares us for what happens. From chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 23, God has seemed entirely absent from the preacher's perspective, from his frame of reference as he tries to interpret the world and chart a course for the people. But now, in verses 24 through 26, God is mentioned three times in very quick succession. And the emphasis is on what God gives good gifts. He is the one who gives enjoyment in life. So in verse 24, the preacher embraces some of the very activities that he has rejected in the previous verses for their failure to bring meaning to life. Remember, that's the quest. Where is meaning? How do I derive purpose? What what is my existence? Is this a zero-sum game after all? And now he says, food and drink and work are what we are to enjoy. So what makes the difference? God makes all of the difference. Look at verse 24. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Friend, if you're here and you're trying to find enjoyment apart from God, it will never happen. Friends, if we are having trouble finding enjoyment in life, God must not be at the very center of things for us. If we are so deeply dissatisfied, then we have been taking good things and making them ultimate things when, as the preacher tells us, that they are actually God-given things, which is why the things that you have pined for and prayed for and yearned for and worked for never satisfy and bottom out in the end. It is a profound and beautiful point that all of us know to be true. Endless enjoyment does not come with the box That you find your iphone or android in if it did why have you been considering the next upgrade enjoyment is not automatically a part of sex it is not on the key ring to your dream house it does not ride with you in the passenger seat of your brand new car and you cannot deposit it in the bank we all know what it is like to have tasted the very best that we think this world has to offer us and still be left wondering, what's next? What's next? What's next? What else is out there? Is there anything beyond this? The preacher tells us that God gives us enjoyment or the thing or the things themselves, phone, sex, house, car, money, and whatever else you want to put in the blank there, Will leave us unsatisfied. And the way that God gives us enjoyment is his gift, in his gift, is by giving us a perspective on ourselves. We know that the gift is not meant to be a stepping stone to greater things. That's how we all live our lives from this to that to that to that. But the preacher tries to reorient our perspective and set our gaze on God so that we would not see everything as a stepping stone and a ladder that we're climbing in life when we realize that we are not meant to rule the world, that we are not the master of our own destiny, that we are not to achieve ultimate gain through our careers or purpose through what we amass in our bank account or how large our families are or whether or not we even have a family, then we discover that enjoyment or joy, as Ian Proven says, is itself the reward that we may expect from life and all our effort expending, expended in living it. There is no surplus to joy beyond joy itself. There is indeed no pathway to joy except by refusing to pursue it and trying to grasp it. Careful readers of Ecclesiastes will find it striking that now, at the end of the preacher's epic quest, a quest that so many of us, if we're honest, for the past few weeks have envied. He literally has tried everything and has been able to do everything that we all long for in the secret dreams of our lives. He discovers where it comes from. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, not from striving, but from God's giving. God is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. And who does God give this to? God gives these things, verse 26, to the one who pleases him. And who pleases him? Not the sinner of verse 26, but as the apostle tells us in Romans chapter 8, the one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And how do we become the type of people in whom the Spirit of God dwells? By placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you see, Ecclesiastes is helping us see from the Old Testament through the New Testament. There is a radical distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And people have only ever been saved by faith. And what faith? The faith of Abraham. And what kind of faith did Abraham have? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham believe about God? He believed God's promise that God would do for him what he could not do for himself that was far beyond his wildest dreams, beyond any expectation that he could ever have in his life. And what was God's promise to him? That he would save him by a redeemer. And who is that redeemer? The Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we have a relationship with him? By repentance in faith, so that we can be saved from what? God's wrath. Friends, that is what is confronting you as we study Ecclesiastes. Will you be saved by God's giving, or will you be judged by God's wrath? Will you repent and trust in His Messiah and in His promises? Or will you be damned for all eternity and your life is nothing but a striving after wind? Will you come to Christ or will you go to hell? Will you believe in God's promises or will you continue to refuse to believe? Will you trust in the Messiah or will you persist in unbelief? That is what Ecclesiastes is confronting us with. It is bottoming out life to show us that what Christianity has to offer is not to make you rich or not to make you happy or not to make you pleasant or even really an agreeable person, but to save you from God's wrath because that is what you so desperately need and nothing in this life can give it to you. And when the preacher realized that he was expecting too much from life and he finally looked upward and saw that it all comes from the gracious hand of God, he finally enjoyed life more. He enjoyed life for the good gift that it was, because he realized that it was an achievement. That's why we all look around at everybody else as a competitor, isn't it? You all love one another, but... You're all comparing yourselves with one another. I do it, you do it, everyone does it. But when we finally realize that everything we have is a good gift from God, we can enjoy what we have and we can enjoy what other people have. And we can be happy for them for what they have. And we can be happy for us for what we have. Because this is what God has given us and that is what God has given them and this is the good gift that he's given, that we would enjoy it. Eat and drink and toil, which basically makes up all of your life, if you're honest. Friends, from this, the gospel flows. And that is the gospel that we're preaching to you. Trust in Christ, believer, afresh. Thank him for his good gift. And if you are not a Christian, this is the core message of Christianity that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. Repent and trust in Christ, and he will save you. This is the good gift of God, that he sent his son to die in your place so that you might live and not die and have a relationship with him and be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to him by faith. From this, all of the good blessings of God flow that we see in ourselves that we are finally dependent creatures Made for a relationship with the Creator. Sinners in desperate need of forgiveness. How much does a man need? Or better, what does a man need? A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. I just want to flesh out a few applications for us today. First, death awareness shifts our focus from individual pursuits to corporate pursuits. Death awareness shifts our our pursuits from individual pursuits to corporate pursuits, from building our portfolio to building God's church. That is one of the first things that happens to the believer. They are saved individually, yes, but their focus is now taken off of themselves and placed on God's church. Brothers and sisters who are members of this church Help us build and strengthen the church. And in the ways that you're doing so, we are so thankful. But continue to scheme. How can we strengthen and build the church together? That is not just the task of the elders. That is not just the task of the diaconate. That is the burden of the entire membership, that we might bear under that burden together and stop focusing on ourselves Me, myself, and I, what I want and need and would like to do, and how do I serve everybody else in the congregation so that we might build one another up as we see the eternal day of God drawing near. No longer a focus on the individual, but on the corporate community. Help us build and strengthen the church. If you're not a member of our church, we'd love to invite you to join the church so that you might join us in that task so that you might help us build and strengthen the witness of this church in this community that, as our brother Nick reminded us, is in a strategic location with people all around who are always watching and observing what takes place here. Help us so that we might serve and minister the gospel to them, so that we don't just simply see people from other churches join our church. We do long for that. We pray for that. But so that we might see unconverted people in our midst converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, help us build the church help us strengthen the church. And if you're focused on yourself, more focused on yourself than on the church, repent. That is not how God wants us to live our lives. Death awareness shifts our focus from the individual pursuits to corporate pursuits. Second, work estranged from the gospel can lead to self-pity, and self-pity is dangerous. Work estranged from the gospel can lead to self-pity, and self-pity is dangerous. Do you feel a sense of privilege in your work? You should. Your work is a good gift from God. Does your work always and only feel like a chore? It is hard work, but it shouldn't only feel like a chore whether you're a stay-at-home mom, corralling kids, whether you're in the office every day or working from your computer at home or something else. Does self-pity characterize your labor? Well, if I didn't have to do this, I would be as happy as that guy. And if self-pity characterizes your labor, then perhaps you don't have a healthy perspective on your work. Friends, your labor, your work, is how we build beautiful things. There aren't just beautiful things in the church. Yes, the church is a beautiful thing, but you all are doing wonderful and beautiful things, and there are people that you will minister to that will never come here to listen to me preach or anybody else who preaches in this pulpit. There are people that God has entrusted to your care by the beautiful and wonderful things that you do, that you have the opportunity to minister to by laboring in a beautiful and wonderful way. The self-pity so characterize your work that they can no longer see the good in what you do. Third, the danger of folly. I want you to turn with me very quickly again to 1 Kings. As we think of wisdom and how it's wrapped up in this, we would think that though Rehoboam was a fool, Solomon himself never turned out to be a fool. I mean, he was the wisest of all kings, right? But in 1 Kings chapter 11, we see the danger of folly, that it can lead even the wisest among us astray, that those of us who might think of themselves or others might perceive to be the wisest and most together, most learned and most prepared among us can fall into a trap. First Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Friends, what often sounds like wisdom and looks like wisdom and might feel to you like wisdom can be foolishness. And there can be a whole host of people following after it, but that does not make it wisdom. Just because you have a substantiated expert in the field does not make it wisdom. Just because they have a platform larger than the other person's platform does not make it wisdom. Just because you like it and it feels he loved them, love is a good thing, does not make it wisdom. It can turn your heart away from God. Has your heart been turned away from God by foolishness in your life? And if you don't know how to answer that question, God has given you a church. Ask your trusted brothers and sisters in this church, am I being a foolish person with my words, in my actions, by the way that I love and minister among the congregation? Will you help me see what I can't? Fourth, Work can be an idol. Work is a good gift, but it can be an idol. A simple question for yourself. Do I view my work as the way that I am justified before God? Now, of course, you would say, no, we're at the Christian church. We know that we're justified by faith alone. Do you see work is what makes you important, or what you do in your work, is what makes you important and valuable to others and substantiates your value in life. If it was taken away and you could never do it again, would you still have joy in God? Whether that's in the home or outside of the home, whether that's for pay or without pay, are you able to say, who I am in Christ is enough for me. Brothers and sisters, if not, then work has taken up residence in your heart as an idol, that you love more than you love God, and you shall have no other gods before him. This too is a call to repentance. Work is a good thing. I'm so thankful that you work. It's one of the ways you serve us. It's one of the ways you serve one another. The work was never meant to be your justification or your God. The preacher bottoms it all out, and he forces our gaze upward. Friends, may we do so today and look upward not only to God in heaven, but to the cross of our Lord Christ, who gave himself up for us so that we might be redeemed from these burdens and experience the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us today, that we would be a people who find joy and contentment in who you have made us to be and called us to be in Christ, that our worth would not be bound up in anything that we're able to produce, that you would help us to see foolishness in our own lives or if you give us the responsibility to help others see it in theirs. Father, we pray that you would make us people focused on the corporate needs of the church, not the individual needs of ourselves or a particular demographic or group. That we might look to the broader body and think, how do we bless everyone? And we ask all of this in the name of our great God, who, in His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us by our Lord Christ. Amen.